I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers. Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the ScammerCast. Today we're going to be looking at the world of cognitive impairment, and we've entitled this episode, Wrapping Your Mind Around Cognitive Impairment. This is one of those topics that, if it hasn't affected you or your family yet, it is likely going to. The statistics are sobering, and probably you are going to face someone in your family who will be dealing with cognitive impairment of one form or another. And it's especially important as we think about our seniors and keeping them safe from those who would rip them off. Because let's face it, if your mind and brain aren't, brain aren't working right, then you're not going to be able to keep yourself as safe from scammers and those who would rip people off. This is Art Mange, your co-host for ScammerCast.com. This is Marty Gurley, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Curtis Bailey, your third co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we are incredibly proud to have Stephanie Rolfs Young, Vice President of the St. Louis Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association with us today. Welcome, Stephanie. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you so much for addressing this really important topic for a lot of families out there. Uh, I know you have tons of great information to share with our listeners today. Before we get started, just wanted to remind everyone that uh, all of our podcasts are archived at scammercast.com. In fact, our most recent episode, an interview with Mark Goodman, the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Future Crimes, uh, which was just recently listed on Amazon as the top-rated book so far in 2015 in the business category. You can find that episode at scammercast.com, and please share your comments and thoughts with us there. Sponsored by Midwest Trust Company. So, Stephanie, thanks again for being here today. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the Alzheimer's Association? Sure. So I began with the Alzheimer's Association 19 years ago when my grandfather had experienced dementia. And we really didn't know as a family what that meant, what that was going to mean. And we were concerned about this issue that was on the cusp of becoming a big topic in our society. So I began with the organization in the education world, and I've since um, completed my master's in social work and continued as a geriatric social worker. And I think what has changed in the last 20 years is that we now recognize so many earlier signs of the disease. We're getting better diagnostics, although there are still challenges with that, and we'll talk about that today. And we have seen so many advances in how people recognize this disease and grown supports for families who are in that situation. So in the mid 1990s, when my family faced this illness, we didn't have a lot of support. We didn't know what to expect, and we didn't know where to turn. And that has changed dramatically. So that's the message we hope to share with you today. So Stephanie, what do you do for the Alzheimer's Association here in St. Louis with the St. Louis chapter on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So my role as vice president is to make sure that we are expanding our programs to reach more people in the community. One of the things that we know about Alzheimer's is that it is so much more stigmatized than other diseases that we face in the community that people don't get access to early detection, support, and resources. So our organization exists to make that journey a little bit easier for the families who are doing that. And as part of my role, I'm out in the community talking about the illness, getting people linked to the right doctor, making sure that they take care of their planning and that they take care of themselves for what may be a journey that is not just a few months, but a few years and sometimes a few decades. It's a long time to be looking at caregiving and 
-hmm. watching your beloved elder or other person decline. So you must provide a lot of emotional support for family and caregivers. We do. So from the minute somebody calls our 24-hour helpline and says, I'm not even sure if we have Alzheimer's in the family, but we're concerned about it, our volunteers and staff are rallying around that family to work with them to identify, first of all, where do they need to go for accurate diagnosis, then providing the emotional support to go through that journey. We have a lot of programs for people with memory loss themselves so that we can complement what they're learning about the disease and provide them that emotional and social support. We continue to work with the family as they go through different planning attributes, including financial and legal issues, which is always an area that comes up, as well as things like safety and how am I going to provide for future care. And then as the family transitions through different stages of the disease, we're working with them throughout just to figure out what's going to come next and help them have a little bit more control over their future. Stephanie, uh, you mentioned that uh, this disease is often stigmatized mm -hmm. in a way that many other diseases are not, like cancer uh, as a big example. And uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are as to why. Is it simply a, a misunderstanding uh, of the disease and what it entails? Well, there are really two issues. First of all, we have come a long way in a very short time in understanding cognitive impairment. And up until the late 1990s, we really didn't have ways to accurately diagnose, detect, or treat the illness. Therefore, people dealt with it at home and used labels like hardening of the arteries, which might have been in terminology that would just explain that we didn't know what was wrong with the person. Right. We now know there are distinct differences between dementia and Alzheimer's and all of these different types of diseases that cause cognitive impairment. So we're making advancements in public's understanding of that, but it's still very, very confusing. And I still see people who come to us and they say, well, my father-in-law has been prescribed Aricept, but I have no idea why. Or we have a diagnosis of dementia, but we have no idea what that means. And they're shocked and surprised sometimes to find out really what those cognitive conditions mean. The second part of it is that I think in the United States in particular, we just have not advanced the topic very well in how we deal with diseases of the brain, whether that is mental illness, whether that is cognitive issues, there seem to still be stigmas. And when you look at the facts and you see that Alzheimer's kills more people every year than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined, that surprises a lot of folks because we've rallied around those other conditions. We've done a lot to raise public awareness and then to get people help. And Alzheimer's is just now on that cusp. And it's high time because the epidemic of Alzheimer's is upon us. So, Stephanie, you, have, you talked a little bit about statistics, but I'm always astounded to hear the statistics. Could you give us some of those about what it affects, Alzheimer's affects, you know, the leading cause of death. Can you give us some of those statistics? Absolutely. So when I say the epidemic is upon us, the Alzheimer's Association has been here for 30 years predicting that when the baby boom generation got to age 65, we were going to see some real challenges in our healthcare system. We know that Alzheimer's and dementia are typically considered to be diseases of aging. So most people who are affected are over the age of 65. What that means for us today is that 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's, or about 1 in 10 people at age 65, but it dramatically increases as we age, so about 40% of people at the age of 85 have some level of cognitive impairment. That coupled with the fact that Alzheimer's is the only disease among the top 10 that doesn't have a way to slow it down, treat it, or cure it, really puts us in a unique category. So we have looked at Alzheimer's for many years as a disease of survival. If you had breast cancer years ago, you might have died from that, but now you don't often. So you will continue to age and then be at risk for cognitive impairment in the future. The point I'll make is that Alzheimer's really tops the list of a lot of lists that we don't want to be at the top yeah, of. Sure it is the number one most feared disease among people over the age of 50. It is the, all the time. All, you hear it all the time. It is the disease amongst the top 10 that we don't have a way to stop or prevent or treat. And it is the disease that is the most costly of all of the different kinds of illnesses, not because of the medical interventions, but because of the length of the disease and what it's going to take to care for that person 24 hours a day. And obviously, as 
all of us in this country live longer as life expectancy increases because of other medical advances. This is going to grow uh, as mm -hmm. a problem. As, in fact, there's, uh, I think you have some statistics by 2050 what the projections are for how right. many people will be affected by this disease. Right. So we expect this disease to triple in the next 20 years, and that's frightening. That's really a staggering number. No other condition that we have faced has really done that other than the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, where if you think back, and those of us in this room were around during that time. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, were. <laughs> I was very, very young. Me too. I don't remember much about it at all. But so I hear, Marty. Um, you know, if you think about it, there was a public health crisis, and we did things to to deal with it. We educated the public. We lobbied very hard for research dollars. We made tremendous impacts in a short period of time. And we have not done that for Alzheimer's, even knowing that the wave of the future is coming for us. So the things that are happening now is that, first of all, we are recognizing it as a public health issue. Secondly, we are stepping up funding significantly. So we know that there is a funding level at which major advancements will be made in research. And just this week, there has been a new announcement that another $300 million have been appropriated for Alzheimer's research, which we are all crossing our fingers, will go through this year because that can make it a tremendous advancement. But I think the other thing that needs to continue to happen is that we need to take the lid off of the conversation about Alzheimer's, both in our families as well as in professional environments. We struggle today because only 45% of people with Alzheimer's actually get a diagnosis. And that compares to the way that we treated cancer in the 50s and 60s. So we have to start those conversations at home and say, if I have somebody with warning signs, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I remain insistent with the doctor that I really need to figure out what's happening to my loved one? It's a surprisingly low percentage. Only 45% get a diagnosis. What Correct. about the other 55%? Do they just sort of bump along thinking, oh, they're a little senile or those kinds of words? Absolutely. So those kinds of words are exactly used. A lot of times people will be told that it seems like there's a touch of dementia, but eh, she's 85. You know, we don't necessarily worry about it. And the reality is cognitive impairment is not a necessary or normal part of aging. When something is occurring that's causing the person to be confused, we need to investigate why. And that investigation sometimes leads us to medical professionals who are still baffled and kind of handheld by that diagnosis. It's not simple. It is not a simple diagnosis. There's no blood test or x-ray or other mechanism in which we can determine whether or not a person has the disease in two minutes. We really have to look closely at all the behaviors, at all the conditions, at all the different arenas that might show up. And we say at the Alzheimer's Association, frankly, a lot of times Alzheimer's shows up first in the pocketbook. And I think that's one of the topics that we want to address today is how people really do have trouble maintaining their own function and finances. And that's where we can sometimes make a quicker intervention. So what is the, the one of the first signs you look for if it's a pocketbook kind of issue and may suggest that there's a coming problem with Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia? So there are clearly 10 identified warning signs that I would encourage people and your listeners to go to alz.org to get the full list of the 10. The number one sign that we're looking for is a change in a person's day-to-day -day behavior that is continuing to decline. So not that they forgot the occasional appointment or maybe forgot to pay a bill on time, but that there's a consistent change over time. And how that relates to the financial world is that you will see people with three months of unpaid bills, stacks and stacks of bills, right. a really unkept um, check registry. You know, they couldn't figure that out. They're unable to process their taxes very well. Or they might become exceptionally philanthropic and try to give $500 to the Girl Scout that comes to the door to deliver the cookies. There are all of these small little signs that I think we as family members have a tendency to ignore at first and write it off and say, oh, it was just a bad moment. But that accumulation of these little bad moments gives us indication that there's something wrong and we need to investigate that. So it's not the occasional bad moment, it's how they keep coming and with more frequency and potentially more severity. 
Absolutely. And we're also looking for what is a change in a person's baseline. So I've never been able to balance my checkbook, and that is going to continue with me in my lifetime. Um, but my grandmother was an example of somebody who is very, very specific with her finances. And she started having to use us as a consultant more and more often. She started having to say, you know, I'm not really sure what this personal property tax, like, what do I have to do with this? Those little points of confusion were there. And my grandmother was diagnosed at the age of 87. When she was diagnosed with the disease, she was one of those individuals who very quickly became confused about how to handle the day-to-day and almost fell into a scam. Fortunately, she was sharp enough to not do that. She caught that something wasn't right, but it's a very, very easy place for that person to be victimized. That raises an interesting point. And I know, Marty, you and I who deal in the legal world with clients who are elderly, uh, oftentimes we will see signs and mm-hmm. like that. You mm-hmm. know, perhaps, uh, in fact, uh, just this week I have a client who was a longtime accountant and, as you can imagine, kept very meticulous records, uh, financial records. And all of a sudden his son notices that, there are checks missing in the checkbook, and right. there's no recollection as to what it was for. Now, we all do that, I'm sure, from time to time, but when it becomes a repeated pattern over time, what you're saying is that's when the family member or the professional should really start to think about uh, going further, right? Absolutely. Okay. You know, we've all we've all sat down to balance the checkbook and found this... <laughs> missing hole and gone, oh, what did I do? Where did I write this? And then you remember, oh, yeah, I wrote that to the church or whatever. That happens. And that ability to backtrack is one of the distinguishing features between somebody with a normal issue, maybe just occasional forgetfulness, and somebody who does have some sort of cognitive impairment. Because in the example that we use with Alzheimer's and dementia, we oftentimes find that the person cannot remember what would have happened. Even if you say, is it possible that you wrote a check to the church? No, I don't think so. You know, they just cannot remember those steps that led them to where they are today. Same kind of situation occurs in the home. You know, they'll misplace something and they don't know how to refind it because they can't logically step through the reality of where it might be. Those are the kinds of warning signs that we need to look for and be much more assertive about intervening as a family, as a professional. Now, are there other kinds of conditions that could mimic the effects of Alzheimer's or dementia that we want to distinguish in the whole diagnostic process. For example, in my work, I've seen that dehydration can be a factor with Mm -hmm. people in cognitive impairment over medication, especially with pain pills, things like uh, higher levels of stress or sleeping problems. I mean, Mm -hmm. how do you think about all of that so that our listeners know that you don't have to necessarily hit the panic button because Mm -hmm. of changes, but be aware? Well, I think it's it's important to understand what we're talking about when we say dementia and Alzheimer's. And the the easiest way to describe it is that dementia is just an umbrella term that means that there's some sort of cognitive loss. It can be reversible. It could be the effects of medication. It could be a miniature stroke that a person's had. It could be all kinds of different things, as you mentioned, sleep deprivation. Um, you know, somebody's got a lot of stress. Maybe they've just moved. There's a temporary condition in which this dementia occurs. Those conditions with right of treatment will usually bring the person right back to their baseline. What we're concerned about, though, are the overwhelming numbers of people who have other kinds of dementia that lead to a progressive nature, something that is not reversible. And the number one type of those conditions is Alzheimer's disease. There are about 60 different types of dementia that we know about and can name that fall into this progressive category. So it's really important when we see the signs of somebody in our family to go very assertively to the doctor and say, what are we dealing with? And if the doctor says, I think it's dementia, then the follow-up question needs to be, what type? What is causing the dementia? Because the dementia is just a symptom it's not a disease itself. Got it. Just a symptom. Wow. Well, that's, that's good clarification. It is. 60 known types of dementia. Right. So there's a bunch of them wow. out there, and I, they all have their own variations. Yeah. So, you know, I, the analogy I use a lot of times with the public is if you went to the doctor today and he said, I'm sorry, Kurt, you have cancer, what would your first question be? 
What kind? What kind? Yeah. Because what kind you have is going to determine treatment. It's going to determine the aggressiveness of it. It's going to determine the outcome. Likewise, we need to get to that level of conversation with dementia to say, okay, I get that I have a cognitive issue. It's a symptom. What kind of symptom am I dealing with and what's causing it? Because whether a person has Pick's disease, Lewy body disease, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, each of those have different treatment protocols. You know, in my work, I work a lot with the elderly, and maybe we have a situation where we're contacting our client, they're not responding, which they used to be really good at responding, or maybe they're calling us every day, um, asking the same questions and things, and we bring this to the family's attention. Can you kind of explain to everybody why early detection and things are so important, why they need to pay attention to this outsider of the family that's saying something is amiss? Well, it typically is the outsider who first sees something that's a little bit off. Family members have a tendency to downplay whatever happened. So, you know, it may be the mechanic that's looking at the car and going, wow, there's a ding on every corner panel of this vehicle. (laughs) Or it may be the financial um, consultant or representative who says, well, there have been some unusual banking transactions. Or as you mentioned, the person seems confused. They're calling me all the time. The reason it's important is that as we talk about dementia, the treatments that are available today are most effective in the earliest stages. So by the time a person is having significant impairment from the disease, if we start the medications that are out there, they're not going to have that much effect. Just to be very, very honest, you lose the effect of the treatment if you wait too long. And the average in the United States right now is that it takes five years from the time the symptoms occur to the time of diagnosis. We need to shorten that. We need to be much more assertive about that. But the second reason is you miss out on opportunities to plan and to be very planful and incorporate the person's wishes into what's going to occur to that individual in the future. The third reason that we really talk about at the Alzheimer's Association is that we want to get that person as socially engaged so that they can maintain a higher quality of life in the early phases and maintain that habit then through the progression of the disease. Alzheimer's is isolating. People with Alzheimer's and dementia tend to stop doing the things that they enjoyed. So if we can recharge those batteries early in the disease and get them connected to emotional and social support, those individuals have a much higher quality of life, both the person with dementia and their caregiver. Stephanie, you've mentioned that uh, Alzheimer's is simply one form Mm -hmm. or one disease process uh, in, in a whole spectrum of uh, cognitive issues labeled dementia. What is Alzheimer's then? What what is the definition of Alzheimer's? So it, it is the most common form of dementia. It's the one we hear about the most. And it is a clinical condition in which certain brain cells begin to die because of an intrinsic property that happens inside the brain cell, something that you can't stop, something that you can't change, something that you can't even see on an x-ray. So it's teeny, 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 tiny microscopic changes. But when those changes begin to occur and when we see plaques and tangles start to form in the brain cells of individuals with a disease, then certain areas of the brain become affected. A single brain cell dies, therefore affecting the brain cells around it, and over time causing an area to be impacted. So sometimes that first area that's impacted is maybe a person's judgment. Maybe they have difficulty making the right decisions or making the decisions that are best for themselves. Some people struggle first with communication or the ability to process information. But the region of the brain that seems to be most affected by Alzheimer's disease is the hippocampus, which really controls how our memories work. So the evidence of Alzheimer's is often seen in short-term memory loss, not long-term. People with Alzheimer's have incredible long-term memories at times, which is why they seem like they're living in the past. That's what they can remember. That's what's familiar to them. But the short-term memory is deeply impacted by those itty-bitty little changes. And what I think is a little frightening is that when you study the research, it shows us that those changes may be happening 20 to 25 years before the first symptoms occur. So sitting in this room, each of us may be losing brain cells that we don't even know about as an impact of Alzheimer's. And that's why the focus of research is shifting toward prevention. I was just going to ask, is is Alzheimer's a preventable condition? 
You know, researchers believe that it will be someday, very much believe that it will be. We are not there yet, but we are proud at the Alzheimer's Association to be the major funder of a number of prevention studies because we recognize that by the time the symptoms occur, what you're seeing in the symptoms of Alzheimer's is really just the tip of the iceberg. What we need to start addressing is what's under the surface. And to do that, we need to be looking at people in their 20s and 30s who develop the disease, figuring out how we start a prevention therapy at that point. And then hopefully Alzheimer's will be a disease someday like polio that we reference in the past. May that day come soon. Yeah. yeah. Can't come soon enough. Yeah. In terms of the financial capabilities and, and loss of capacity, what I've understood from various resources is that some of the first things to go in terms of a person's financial capacity are the ability to balance a checkbook or figure simple tips and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Does that agree with what you have, have understood or are there other signs that, that people need to be watching for? No, that's absolutely, absolutely for some of those first signs. And we talk to families about the fact that the person's having difficulty with taxes, if they're struggling to maintain their checkbook. As you mentioned, figuring a tip, you know, when you go to a restaurant and they bring you the bill and you've got to sit there and calculate, those really quick calculations become more and more challenging even in the very early stages of the disease. So if we were all to look very closely at our loved ones, particularly those people over 70 or 80 years old in our lives, we might find that they start deferring some of those activities. They might, you might find that the individual starts saying to the um, waiter or waitress, oh, here, let me give you 10 bucks, because they really can't calculate that anymore. You might find that in particular with spouse couples, one of them starts to take over the finances, and it may not even become apparent until something happens to that spouse. And then all of a sudden, there's this cascading behavior in which you realize that they were kind of covering up, not in a malicious way, mm -hmm. but they were covering up what was happening. And that's often when we see the real evidence of Alzheimer's and dementia emerge. You mentioned a little while ago about people who become exceptionally philanthropic. <laughs> and I was giving a presentation not too long ago, and, and a caregiver came up to me and said that her mother was giving to every questionable charity under the sun mm -hmm. and had forgotten that she was giving to any particular one of them and just kept giving and giving and giving. And some of the charities are, are perfectly legitimate and some of them are not. And so they were really exploiting this yes. poor woman because of her cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Boston College did a uh, study just last year that uh, showed that cognitive impairment was one of the two uh, scientifically proven causes of susceptibility to scams, mm -hmm. the other being overconfidence, which is kind of an interesting, <laughs> you yeah, know, interesting component. Right. And when you, yeah, when you combine overconfidence with cognitive mm -hmm. impairment, look out, that's, uh, yeah. that's mm -hmm. a recipe for disaster. Right. Uh, but the interesting comment that they made in the study was that they found that the cognitive impairment actually started much earlier than I think all of us in this room probably mm -hmm. would care to acknowledge, but by right. the early 50s, signs of cognitive impairment could also could be seen. What, mm -hmm. the, what is the research? Does the research confirm that from the scientific standpoint? In certain individuals, it does. Yeah. So the vast majority of people really have the symptoms of Alzheimer's or dementia after the age of 60 or 65. But there are many of us, about 5 to 10% of people with Alzheimer's or dementia, who start to experience those symptoms earlier in their 40s or in their 50s. You see that play out in risky business deals, you know, purchase of property that just wasn't ever going to become an investment that was worthy of that family. Um, you see it with judgment issues and reasoning and rationale. So to Art's point, that conversation about somebody who becomes a, a willing giver but doesn't have the capability to research who they're giving to, those are the kinds of things that we see all the time. And I worked with a client recently and, um, you know, the family, he was, I believe, either 58 or 59 years old. So very young to have this disease. The family had no idea that he had virtually squandered a quarter of a million of their dollars mm. in their research, or I'm sorry, in their assets, in their retirement. You know, this, this young family now with kids in college is in a real pickle right. because right. they didn't recognize that he was making some really risky business deals. Yeah, I could imagine that some of the less ethical investment advisors would gravitate toward these mm -hmm. folks and, 
invite them to a free lunch and then get them to sign up for some crazy investment, which is completely inappropriate for them. Right, right. We absolutely see that. We see people become victims of phone and email scams very easily. That was where my grandmother got caught up. But again, you know, able to get themselves out of it in some situations, but most of the time not not able to unwind it themselves. What kind of scam did uh, you mention the scam that your grandmother was sure. a victim of? Do you, do you mind sharing that story? Not with at our all. Listeners? Uh, she proudly shared the story on herself, so I don't <laughs> I don't mind sharing that. So she was she was the victim of a scam when somebody called to get her banking information and to clarify her social security number. Mm. So the caller said, "I'm from Bank of America and I need to just verify these couple things with you." Well, fortunately, my grandmother was cognitively intact enough that after she gave that information, she sat and thought it about it a couple minutes and said, "Uh uh-oh. So she called the bank and she said, here's what I just did. And I don't think I should have done that. And then... She also said, please don't tell my daughter. (laughs) And in a a small town in southeast Missouri, that kind of word gets out really quickly. But, you know, it was one of those situations that she recognized something was off, but not in that moment. And particularly for people who have Alzheimer's and are so conscientious of how they're being judged by other people, they often want to be more cooperative. They want to go that extra mile. They want to not have somebody questioning whether or not their judgment is good. So she was like, oh, sure, this this is the bank. This sounds legit. And it wasn't. Right. But you raise an interesting point that even in someone who has perhaps a mild early form of cognitive impairment, simply asking them, as I recommend people do in what I call scam practice or scam drill, has anyone asked you for your bank account information? Mm-hmm. It, they still have at an early stage of, of the illness some reflective capacity where they can think back for a fairly brief period, did this happen or or Mm -hmm. have I done something that maybe I should tell somebody about? I think that's a really good point. And people with Alzheimer's, even in the earlier stages, begin to rely less on their own logic and reasoning and more on their gut feel. So I would suggest in addition to that question is also, did anything not feel right to you? Because they become more instinctual. It's more, did this person seem to treat me well? Or was there an underlying reason that they seem to want to be connected to me? People with Alzheimer's have very high filters for that. They may not be able to articulate it well, but they know when somebody is not right, when somebody is not the right person to be around. So I think us as family members have to just dig a little deeper and not only ask, did anybody ever ask you for this? That's logical fact stuff. They may not remember that. But was there anything that didn't feel right to you? Good point. And they may be yeah. able to to articulate it. Not perfectly. Well, and and I imagine too that the the family member really has to be aware of sort of the the facial cues and, mm-hmm. and behavioral cues because the senior may still say, eh, you know, I don't think there was a problem, but right. you can see that there is some discomfort there. So Absolutely. you have to ask the follow up question and also listen to the response right in right. all forms right. and read the body language itself. right read, read the, body the facial language. expressions in the body and you know, if they get closed body position all of a sudden or they look down or away i mean you know all the signs that we've come to recognize is somebody with something to hide true yeah. and and one thing that i think becomes challenging particularly if it's a uh, caregiver who's a generation younger so maybe it's a child caring for a parent this is an awkward conversation just to start with because most parents are not in a position of sharing all their financial information many people with alzheimer's as i mentioned feel judged so they know that they're slipping the person with alzheimer's knows that they're slipping and they feel like everybody's over scrutinizing so i think there's a delicacy with which we approach this and if it sounds like an inquisition <laughs> to the person with dementia they're going to shut down yeah, they're not going to have point. that conversation with you it's got to be safe it's it got to be safe and it's got to be a, an environment that starts very early you know walking yeah. that journey with your loved one and saying i want to make sure that we are protected that you're not going to be in a situation where somebody takes advantage of your mom can we talk about this and gaining that permission to really open the doorway first is usually more successful for families stephanie i had a client in the dallas area whose daughters were made aware that there were there were some issues and they had no idea how to even deal with it. They certainly took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, there's something going on. 
But from an emotional perspective of theirs, Mm -hmm. being the daughters, not wanting mom to have it, mom knowing what was going on, not wanting to have it, I actually referred them to the Alzheimer's Association, the the Dallas chapter, so that the girls, the daughters, could actually have someone to talk to about how do we deal with this situation with mom? How do we do it delicately so that she doesn't lose her pride? Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a very important aspect that as the disease progresses as caregivers, we need to always be conscientious about our loved one's safety. And safety can be very broadly interpreted, everything from driving to finances. But we also need to do this work with dignity and preserving the person's independence. So I think the opposite situation that I've seen in my 20 years of doing this is family members who swoop in and take over control of everything, which will also raise suspicions amongst the person with dementia. It's like, wait a minute, am I being victimized from within? And that's a very common scenario. But even over asserting that balance and stepping too far into their business, you have to know when it's the right time to be that support. I always think about it as a balance. You want to be there to balance out the deficits that they're losing. Where are they losing ability? But you don't want to overstep those boundaries because, after all, these are people that raised you. They diapered you. (laughs) They sent you to school. They know what they're doing. So, you know, recognize. Absolutely. They merit your respect. and, And we have to be delicate in that approach. Yeah, there's a real sweet spot here, isn't there? There is. There is. It's more of an art than it is a science in many respects. We're visiting today with Stephanie Rolf-Young, Vice President of the St. Louis Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and she's sharing some great information with all of us about cognitive impairment and how to handle it if it raises its ugly head in your family situation. We're going to take a short break here at ScammerCast.com, and we'll be right back. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at ScammerCast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. Tired of attending pet expos where anything goes? Me too. Where can you find a listing of truly quality, reliable, frankly, amazing pet expositions for you and your pet? Check out AmazingPetExpos.com for the best listing of pet exposition programming on the planet. With detailed floor plans, team bios, and a grand comprehensive listing of pet programs across the United States year-round, you'll be sure to find a pet expo that you and your family can turn into a satisfying memory. Check it all out at AmazingPetExpos.com now and learn the difference between what you'll remember and what you'll experience forever. AmazingPetExpos.com That's AmazingPetExpos.com Faith. It has a number of definitions, flavors, and meanings to everyone. But what does it mean to you? Share what direction, goals, and experiences you've found with your faith via A Call to Courage with Stephanie Haynes. CouragePodcast.com. That's CouragePodcast.com. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The Discipline to Grow the strength of experience, the ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. Welcome back to ScammerCast. 
your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back to the ScammerCast. We are so happy to have Stephanie Rolfs-Young, Vice President of the St. Louis Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association with us today, sharing information and tips on how to recognize cognitive impairment and the things that maybe caregivers and professionals that deal with seniors can do to, to help. Stephanie, we've been talking a lot about the difficulty uh, the conversation can be to start particularly a family member, a child who's been raised by mom or dad. And I see it a lot in my elder law practice where maybe it's dad. Dad has been such a dominant force in the family for so many years, and adult daughter is noticing a problem, uh, yes. but is very scared and unsure on how to start the conversation with dad. So what is your, t what is your best advice for daughters in that kind of situation? Well, I think what you describe is such a common portrayal because all of us have deep respect for parents and those that raised us. And it is always tethered in love that we have to have the conversation. I think one of the things that comes up is that because we don't, we are leading to more problems in the future. So recognizing, first of all, that you're doing this because you care is why you bridge that conversation. And I encourage family members to very openly say, you know, I'm concerned about this in our future. Not you, not me, in our future. You can say, I've been to a seminar, I've heard a lecture, I've read something online, whatever it is. But something that has introduced the topic for you today, maybe it gives you that chance to say, have you, Dad, ever thought about what this would be for you? You want the person to start talking if you can. If you go in, guns blazing, here's what I'm doing, I'm taking over, you're not going to have a very positive approach. You're not going to have a very positive response. But if you say, I am concerned about this for our family, and I'm concerned about whether or not I've got all the right places in play, right, all the right plans in play, that's something that dad is naturally going to respond to. Dad's been there to help you plan, to help you be that person. Get that person then talking. Say, tell me a little bit about what you've done. Have you ever thought about risk? Have you ever made those kinds of plans? And oftentimes the person will say, well, I don't feel like I've got everything buttoned up the way that I want. And I certainly could have that conversation now with you. That's the ideal outcome. Not every outcome is like that, of course. There are families that have to get involved in really messy situations and do have to pursue situations like guardianship or conservatorship. Right. But those are the avoidable scenarios by having that early conversation. Uh, that's a great point, Stephanie, because oftentimes as an elder lawyer, I am dealing with families in crisis. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, guardianship is maybe the only option mm -hmm. left. And it's never, as I tell all of my clients, it's never going to turn out the way that you think it's going to turn out. And it's not going to be an easy process. So what I'm hearing you say uh, to our listeners is start sooner rather than later. Always. And that is just a key message through the Alzheimer's Association, whether it is recognizing those early symptoms and doing something about it, whether it is picking up the phone and calling our 24-hour helpline. We don't call it a hotline. We are there for crisis, but we prefer not to be. We prefer to be there on the front end and say, let's talk about what we're going to need to do to plan for this situation. Almost every scenario in Alzheimer's and dementia care is best done when done early. And that includes the legal planning, the financial planning, those conversations about some really tough topics. But we encourage families to have those courageous conversations, and we work with families to find their language that will fit. So that's one advantage of connecting to us is we'll talk you through that conversation with dad well before you even open that door. One of the things that I've found is when they do the proper planning early on and they have their powers of attorney set up and their trust set up and those things, a lot of times you don't have to go through that guardianship proceeding. You don't yeah. have to do that. And that is so, at least from a, an emotional perspective, is very, very hard on everybody to have to go through a guardianship proceeding. It, you know, it absolutely is. And it's, it's something that um, as I've gained time in the practice, you see more and more. And I tell every client... Our goal here is to keep your family out of court. 
Yes. Because yep. the court system is not designed to deal with right. family issues like this. Mm -hmm. And the results will just not be satisfying. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, if the family did some early planning, have those powers of attorney in place, maybe a trust is appropriate, uh, at least have the professionals there that can be a safeguard, the, the chances of a positive outcome are far greater. Absolutely. far more enhanced. Mm -hmm. I just want to remind all of our listeners that we uh, have an entire episode devoted to powers of attorney and advanced planning at scammercast.com. Stephanie, what you mentioned the 24-hour helpline. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little more about it and uh, how they can access it, obviously, and sure. what it can provide for them. Sure. So there will be a link on the website, but any time during business hours or after 24-7, we are there at 1-800-272-3900, and that number links people to the National Alzheimer's Association 24-hour helpline. Regardless of where people call from, they will get somebody who can support them in the immediate question that they have. If it's a question about diagnosis, warning signs, where to find a doctor, where to find an attorney, all of those components, we walk the family through. And then the next morning or the next business day, you'll actually receive a follow-up call from your local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association to talk even more in depth about what else do we need to do to plan. You know, the highest number of calls, the highest call volume we get is between 8 p.m. and midnight. And that tells me that baby boomers are coming home at the end of the workday. They've gotten the kids maybe in bed. Right. They've dealt with the, the family needs. And they're starting to do some research. And they need some help and some guidance. And that's what we provide through that line. It's the classic sandwich generation, right? Still it have is. children at home, and, but also helping an elderly parent. Right, right. Yeah, I hear a lot about that in my work. And it's so important to be on top of this stuff because if it gets away from you as the caregiver, it, it just can spin out of control so fast. It can. And, you know, again, I think Alzheimer's has a tendency to sneak up on us. It is an insidious onset. It starts so slowly. You may not recognize those microscopic changes at first, but you have to be diligent when you see something that just doesn't feel right to you to pick up that helpline and call and say, is this something that I should be concerned about? Is it a concern that I just found a few of my mom's bills and they haven't been paid? Or maybe she's opened this new credit card and mom was never a credit card kind of gal. What's going on here? Those are those classic signs that we can talk the family through. I mean, that's one of the things that I deal with in my book and in, in my first chapter on prevention, which is how you begin to think about this stuff and craft a plan for scam prevention as a subset of your financial safety arena uh, that incorporates the idea that there could be early stages of cognitive impairment that a simple test would reveal uh, mm -hmm. I recommend one in the book. And then as you th go through each level, you can add more kinds of protective layers. I've referred to it as building a wall between mm -hmm. your parent and the criminal, whether that is someone outside of the family or, as you mentioned on our break, potentially there's a criminal within the family who could commit something that we call financial abuse or exploitation. Could you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I think many of us have our radar tuned in to those that might come from the outside and we're looking for whether or not mom or dad or grandma might be scammed from outside the family. But there are also opportunists within the family that we have to be aware of. It's not only, you know, a, a home health worker that you might be bringing into the home and go, boy, I really need to scrutinize this. But it might be the grandson who comes home from college and says, you know what, this summer I think I'll live over at grandma and grandpa's house. And then all of a sudden, grandma and grandpa's car is being driven a lot more miles than it used to be. There are, you know, opportunities that the pocketbook's being opened up for the grandson to have a little bit more fun that summer. And all of these are, again, kind of that typical cascade. It may start so slowly with the grandmother being just a little bit more generous than she might have been. And the next thing you know, she spent $10,000 on this kid having a great summer. And you're going, wait a second, we've got to get on top of this. So there are certainly opportunities for family members to continue that dialogue and say to the person, let's make sure we've got you set up where you've got your fund money. We want you to have open access to your fund money. But we're going to make some other deliberate choices that you don't have access to everything. 
because probably not too many of us should have access to everything <laughs> right. in our pocketbooks. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, you have to watch out for sneaky stuff like when, we'll say the grandson in this example, mm -hmm. goes to the store for grandma, and then he does a cash back transaction and helps himself to 20 or more dollars. Right. Absolutely. It's that kind of sneaky stuff you have to watch for. Yes. I also have some, some situations where it could be completely unintentional. I recently have had a client that had a fall and was in the hospital and in rehab and is very confused now, otherwise living by herself and everything, really, really confused. Um her daughter, who believes is helping, has been in and out of the house and everything where, you know, I have a trust that owns the house. And the first thing I tell the daughter, well, I have to change the locks. Mm -hmm. You mean I can't go in and out? That's exactly what I mean. You can't go in and out. So, you know, from a professional's perspective as well, I mean, it's not that I'm suspicious of her. And she's very well-intentioned. Right. But I have mom and dad I have to protect. I have other beneficiaries of the trust I have to protect and everything. And so a lot of times it's not as easy as somebody saying, well, I'm just going to do this. Right. You know, because they put a plan in place. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and those unintended consequences occur all the time. You know, we have a, a family member that uh, had an individual who was helping out in providing some, some home care. So that person was then using the vehicle of the person with memory loss, driving it back and forth to the store, taking her to the beauty shop, taking her to church. And all of those things seemed very innocent at first. But then it kind of became a situation where that person was unaccompanied in the car an awful lot. And what the family didn't realize is you are liable for what happens in that vehicle exactly. when you've got another driver mm -hmm. in the car. So it's not that we want to be naturally suspicious of right. everybody that comes around to help. Mm -hmm. But I think we do have to be very, very clear to safeguard those assets and those um, needs that the family member is going to have in the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All of us are professionals in the field in one way or the other. Uh, and oftentimes, as professionals in the field, we have to comply with our ethics codes mm -hmm. uh, for attorneys. Financial advisors obviously have a certain code of ethics they have to follow and they have duties to their clients. And oftentimes it can be tough for professionals to reconcile some competing mm -hmm. obligations they feel they have. And uh, I know there is a movement, particularly here in the state of Missouri, uh, to legislatively address that. And I wondered if maybe mm -hmm. you could share with our audience what Missouri is doing, and maybe it can be an example to other states in the country. Well, this is a conversation that is absolutely happening across the country because that wave of Alzheimer's is so upon us. And particularly those in the financial industry are, are in a tough spot. You know, as a financial advisor, you need to execute your client's wishes, whether those are what you would do yourself or whether or not it even seems in the best interest of that client. But when you are able to recognize that there might be a behavior that is related to a cognitive impairment, the question that the financial industry has asked is what other options are available to me? So in the state of Missouri, the Alzheimer's Association partnered with several of the leading financial industries and the Secretary of State's office to go forth with some legislation, which now in the state of Missouri, we have a law that's been passed that allows that financial advisor or banker or representative of financial industry to say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with this transaction. I'm going to put a pause on it while I investigate what else is happening. So let's say the family has a huge account at Wells Fargo. The person with memory loss calls up and says, I want to take $200,000 on a cash out today. That might be one of those situations that we say, boy, this is uncharacteristic mm -hmm. of everything that the person's ever done before. I really need to get more people involved in this conversation. And in the past, people would have been prohibited from having that conversation with the family. This allows us to put the pause on it and say, let's talk to your daughter. Let's talk to that power of attorney. Let's get some more conversation going before I make that transaction for you. And it's, it's an important thing, not only for the financial industry to have those protections, but it's a very important conversation for us to be having across the country. How do we safeguard and protect these individuals? Yeah, because, you know, uh, before this kind of law, a, a financial advisor likely just would have executed the mm -hmm. client's wish. In fact, yeah, they would, have a direction be, and they're yeah, following it. Would be obligated Absolutely. to Absolutely. follow the wish. Mm -hmm. But this sort of gives the uh, the professional the ability to exercise a little judgment and caution right. and say, 
I, I may end up doing this transaction, but let's right. investigate a little further before I do so, right? right? One of the things that has become common in estate planning, at least when, when we are serving as trustee, is we may actually ask them to execute a HIPAA release form mm -hmm. because typically in a document, um, there are different provisions that will kick in once they're there is somebody that has a cognitive impairment or becomes incapacitated is the term that's usually used. Right. And so we will actually ask for the HIPAA release not to look at all of their stuff, but so that we can actually talk to medical professionals, ask sure. them to send us something in writing stating they can no longer handle their financial um, situation. So, you know, that's something that, that we have always done, but this, but this new law even gives us a little more um, flexibility before yeah. that impairment. And I think one of the things that people don't recognize is that the Alzheimer's Association is also there to consult with professionals. Mm -hmm. So whether that is medical professionals, which we receive tons of calls every day from physicians' offices that say, I'm here with Mrs. Smith, and we've just determined that there seems to be some cognitive impairment. We want to link her to you. But we also get calls from financial and legal professionals who say, you know, I'm concerned about this. What are some appropriate approaches they will often ask their client, is it okay for the Alzheimer's Association to follow up with you? So we're receiving a much more direct connection to those clients, and that's positive as well. Because if a family is facing this disease, they're going to need more than just a trust or an estate plan. They're going to need a lot of additional supports, and making all those linkages is very, very important. You know, one of the things that I'm involved in with the Alzheimer's Association is actually trying to help advisors know who to contact, when to contact, when to refer clients and everything. There has been a push in the St. Louis market in particular with financial advisors to do this. So if there are any financial advisors out there, you know, we will post links um, on our website to let them know who they could contact for their clients as well yeah. and to get additional information. Indeed, and that goes for uh, those uh, of my brothers and sisters in the mm -hmm. legal world as well mm -hmm. who, who deal with elderly clients and families, these kinds of situations. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out to the Alzheimer's Association if you have uh, a, a client sitting across the table from you and you feel just a little bit uncomfortable mm -hmm. about the situation. And that applies also because in our presentations on prevention, mm -hmm. we talk about the three R's of prevention, which are recognize the signs, respond, know what to do, and then reach out, which would absolutely include the Alzheimer's Association and, and any other professionals who might provide uh, useful input. And you, you mentioned something about how it allows the financial advisor or professional to slow things down a bit. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the dead giveaways for a scam is the presence of urgency. You have yes. to act now. And I would refer our listeners back to our episode on the 10 plus 1 dead giveaways for a scam so they can review all of that information. Because if you know the signs and you watch for the changes, then the likelihood of the scam victimization from within or without declines dramatically. So I'm glad you brought that out, Stephanie. Right. And I think, you know, as with so many things that we talk about in this topic, it is about not only recognizing, but doing that next step, getting that response and, and getting connected to the kind of help that will help you. And one thing we see ourselves as at the Alzheimer's Association is connecting people to the right sources. So if you have a situation that's already occurred in your family and it's created a complicated legal or financial situation, we'll link you to the professionals in the community that make sure you get that solved for your family so that you're not walking that journey alone. Stephanie, you've shared with our audience um, uh, the, your advice to take the first step, make the, make the contact, uh, start the conversation. Kind of take us through what, what's the next uh, step beyond that even. Let's say that you do have the conversation with mom or dad, and um, may, maybe they uh, recognize there's a problem and, and are willing to to uh, reach out or or maybe they're not but what's right. the next step for the family caregiver or the professional that sees it so you know what we as an organization do is we really walk through that journey with the family and figure out what are their needs going to be today and tomorrow help them put in place a plan of action so we not only through our 24-hour helpline distribute a lot of information but we do some planning with that family through something we call a care consultation, where you sit down with an experienced social worker like myself. We identify all the different needs that you're going to have and come up with maybe a four or five step plan. 
maybe that plan includes getting your legal and financial affairs um, connected to or, or dealing with them. So we'll connect you to the right appropriate attorneys or elder law attorneys or financial representatives for that. A lot of times we address safety issues. There are not only safety issues in terms of financial issues, but things around the house that need to be addressed. We almost always are working with that family on making sure that they're getting the best health care because that can be an issue as well. The diminished capacity also leads to a diminished presentation in other health care issues that might be out there. So we'll work with them in that regard. And then making sure that the family is connected to the kind of support that they're going to need because every one of these little decision points creates a pressure and it creates a pain. And it particularly is hard if you're caring for somebody that is so close to you and has been such a rock in your life. Now the role starts to reverse. So getting that person education, getting them support, getting them connected to lifelong kind of learning is important for us as well. Excellent. One of the things that we're going to offer on the show notes page for ScammerCast is an excerpt from my book uh, where I lay out a plan for how to think about cognitive impairment at various levels of mm-hmm. that impairment. Uh, so that will be on our, our show page for ScammerCast.com. And it includes things such as how do you monitor your parents' home or property for fraudulent activity? Things like requesting a credit freeze, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know how to do that. But that right. shuts down the the possibility of someone opening up new credit accounts in, in the senior's name. And so we want to make that available to our listeners as well. It's a great resource, yeah. Stephanie, you've mentioned, obviously, um, the National Alzheimer's Association, the local St. Louis chapter of which you are vice president of. How can people interact with you specifically and the Alzheimer's Association generally? Well, the good news is we are one unified network across the country, and we coordinate our efforts with the international Alzheimer's effort as well. So we don't consider Alzheimer's to be a local disease. It is a global issue. But for local services and support, no matter where a person calls or where they access our website, you'll always get connected back to your local chapter. And there are 70 chapters across the country in the United States, which allows us to have a lot of very personalized services, very customized and very local. So people can connect to us through alz.org and they can get connected then to their local chapter from that point. Or they can call that 1-800 number at 1-800-272-3900 and get connected to their local services and their local supports. There are really important calls to action, though, for all of us. If you have a family member with memory loss, I encourage you to call today. Get some information. Get some support. Even if you don't think you need us today, go ahead and start that conversation. Then for those of us who don't have memory loss in the family, I would encourage you to help us with some of the big international efforts that are occurring. The first is research. We are always, always, always focused on research because our vision is a world without Alzheimer's. So we need to do as much as we can to end this disease. Research is going to need two major drivers. One is more funding. We talked about that already. But the second is that we need people to get engaged in research studies at a local level. So if you live in an area that has a university that has a research center with it, you can sign up through the Alzheimer's Association to get connected to that local research study. And we need both people with memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's, as well as healthy individuals. In particular, if you have a parent who has had Alzheimer's disease, that adult child is really a critical person to be studied. So we're always recruiting for research studies. We have a program called Trial Match, which makes it easy. You sign up for Trial Match, then we tell you what research you match to. The second important thing that all of us can do is to sign up to be an Alzheimer's advocate. So those dollars that were appropriated by Congress hopefully will pass through, but they only pass through because the voices of Americans who call and say, this issue is important to me. And our National Advocacy Network has done some amazing work, not only to make sure that we have more dollars, but on local levels, like passing the Senior Services Protection Act, we make sure that the local laws support families who have the disease. And then a fun way to get involved with us is through our signature fundraising event called Walk to End Alzheimer's. And walks take place across the country from August to October. You can get a connection to your local walk by going to alz.org forward slash walk. And then you'll get a connection to how to start a team, how to do some local fundraising, and recognizing that with every time we raise dollars, we also raise awareness. So one of the things Marty and I talked about in the break 
is that we're challenged in this disease because only 45% of people get a diagnosis, but only 10% of those who have the disease are actually getting connected to the Alzheimer's Association and getting connected to this kind of support and help. And we want to change that with those conversations. And, and I want to mention that for our international listeners, there are very active Alzheimer's associations in, for example, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and I'm sure most other countries in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you have connections through the ALC.org website to international organizations as well. Is that correct? That's correct. So our sister organization worldwide is Alzheimer's Disease International, and we have actually worked with them on a wide range of international research opportunities, as well as making Alzheimer's a global public health priority. And I'm really excited to say that for the first time, the World Health Organization is placing Alzheimer's and dementia at the top of their list as world priorities. The G8 has really been active in assuring that we have dementia plans for various countries around the globe. The Alzheimer's Association has pushed for that here in the States. We have a an Alzheimer's plan that should come up with an effective treatment or cure by the year 2025. So we're really aggressively looking at research, dollars, all of those things that will make a meaningful difference. But it's not a disease that's local. If the cure comes from some other place, we have to have a global strategy, and that's part of what we are doing. Fantastic. And we will provide links to all of the websites and all of the ways that you can interact with the Alzheimer's Association in the show notes at scammercast.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful opportunity, and I hope everybody will take advantage and do just one thing for Alzheimer's this month. It's a great challenge. It great. really is, and thanks again for, for being here. Until next time, please visit us at scammercast.com. Leave us your thoughts, your ideas, your stories. Let us know if you've faced uh, this situation of cognitive impairment in your family and how you have addressed it. And if you like our podcast, please tell a friend. Please tell a colleague or one of your associates. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host on scammercast.com. And this is Marty Gurley, your co-host on scammercast.com. And Art Mains, your third co-host on ScammerCast.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember, hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, hammer the scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.